and colleagues, and welcome to Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. This is a bonus episode. It is a lecture that I gave to some of the pediatrics residents here. My name is Luke Johnson, and I am an assistant professor of pediatric and general dermatology at the University of Utah. And this was a lecture to the pediatrics residents here at the University of Utah about the cutaneous manifestations of systemic disease. And I figured we might as well record it and release it as a bonus episode for anybody who is interested. So, without further ado, here's me. All right, hello, everybody. Um, let's try to get some engagement with a few people here. Hello, everybody. Hello. Lovely. And I understand there's some people watching via Zoom. Hello, people watching via Zoom. Hello. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for um, joining us physically or virtually. Uh, I'm Luke Johnson. I'm one of the pediatric dermatologists here, assistant professor in the University of Utah Department of Dermatology. My colleagues in the division are Sarah Cipriano and Cheryl Vanderhoeft, who did a lot of the slides. I have no financial relationships, but I do co-host a podcast about dermatology, which is called Dermosphere. So if you consider yourself a real dermatology enthusiast and a podcast enthusiast, you might want to check it out. And full disclosure, I am hoping slash planning to release this very lecture as a bonus episode. So if you shout loud enough, perhaps you can be immortalized. <laughs> so we're going to talk about some cutaneous manifestations of systemic disease. And so some of our objectives, especially for people just learning dermatology or have learned only a little bit of it, is to practice some of our dermatologic lexicon because it's easy to get confused with papules and plaques and macules and so forth if you don't do it every day. To figure out that some stuff on the skin might be concerning and when they might need to be referred to dermatology. Though I will say, in the majority of cases, stuff on the skin doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on deeper, at least with our current medical knowledge. So I find myself like reassuring parents occasionally that don't think this means there's like something wrong inside with your child. I think they just have eczema. So let's treat their eczema. But there are occasional times when the skin is perhaps a window to the body, and we're going to be discussing some of those times. So our first case is this patient. So we can practice describing with no judgment. Feel free to call out how you might describe this in your physical exam portion of your note. Somebody said acanthosis, I think. Technically, acanthosis is something you see under the microscope. Um, so it would be hard to get there just by looking at it. I like hyperpigmented. Velvety, love it. In dermatology, we have a lot of adjectives that steer you toward particular diagnoses. So if your goal is to make me think about something that's usually referred to as velvety, calling it velvety at this point is a good idea. And is it a macule, a papule, plaque, a patch? I feel like I could feel it if you ran your finger along it. So it's a plaque, hyperpigmented velvety plaque, love it. And then of course in your physical exam you would write down that this was on the posterior and lateral mesh or something like that. So whoever said acanthosis I think already has a diagnosis in mind and that diagnosis is? 
Acanthosis nigricans, yes. And somebody mentioned insulin resistance, which is one of the associations with acanthosis nigricans, but not the only one. So we'll get to some of the others as well. So just as you described, brown velvety plaques, it does can be in other places besides the neck. Sometimes we sit on things like the antecubital fossae and less often elsewhere. We said insulin resistance. Very good. That is definitely associated with acanthosis nigricans. What else? Aha, excellent. So you will learn something. So insulin resistance states and then other things as well. So obesity, which may or may not, I guess, be truly associated with insulin resistance. And then some of these other endocrine abnormalities like acromegaly and polycystic ovarian syndrome, Cushing syndrome, diabetes, as you guys probably know. So like checking them for hemoglobin A1C or whatever is often recommended. And I'll usually send people back to their PCPs to say, make sure they check all these things. There's some medications that can cause this or be associated with it. We'll talk about which ones. And then sometimes it's not really associated with any of this stuff, just there, which is not a very satisfying answer for the patients, um, but there it is. And you can say, if you ruled out some of this other stuff, well, I don't really know exactly why you have this, but the good news is it doesn't look like you have any of these other problems that some people have. And there are some syndromes that are associated with this as well. You guys don't need to see my Zoom chat window. I'll just put it over there somewhere. And if anybody via Zoom is chatting, then I don't know, text somebody who's here in person and they can let me know. <laughs> so there's this hair AN syndrome, which stands for hyperandrogenism insulin resistance and acanthosis nigricans. It just seems to be a genetic condition that some people have. So I've had a couple patients with this and I tell them, well, I think this is what you have. It doesn't really mean much, except that there's a genetic reason for you to have these traits, but there it is. We still have to deal with them the way it is. Um, and then if you've got these inactivating insulin receptor mutations, you can have pretty impressive acanthosis now your mm -hmm. So check out their hemoglobin A1C, their glucose, a lipid panel, AST, ALT, liver disease stuff. So there's this controversial entity where maybe if people have like sudden onset acanthosis, diff diffuse acanthosis nigricans, it could maybe be a perineoplastic phenomenon. That's controversial as to whether or not it exists. And if it does, it's probably more adults than kids. But if you think you see something like that, you can screen them for malignancy. In the literature, it's mostly GI stuff. And they get um, on their palms as well, which they call tripe palm. I guess those look like tripe, which I think is like pig guts or something. Um, and then do this review of systems to rule out these associated things that can happen. And as you guys know, there are a number of dermatologic manifestations of things like Cushing syndrome and polycystic ovarian syndrome, which you would also look for on physical exam. So there are some medications that can be associated, such as those here. Some of them make sense, like corticosteroids. We already talked about Cushing syndrome, stuff that affects the endocrine axis and sometimes do it. But niacin and some protease inhibitors, it's a little bit of a surprise, but there it is. So how do you treat it? You treat the underlying problem, of course. And then treating, so especially with patients with like the physiologic versions or the genetically predisposed versions, what do you do? Well, there's nothing that helps a whole lot, but some of this stuff can help at least some. So topical retinoids, one of a dermatologist's favorite medications, good for acne, good for wrinkles, good for scarring, good for dispigmentation, good for what ails you. 
Everybody who's not pregnant or breastfeeding should be using a topical retinoid, in my opinion. I've been using it for like 25 years, and look at my face. I'm 50 years old, and I look like I'm about to turn 40. So that's an option. There are also some creams that in intentionally try to remove some of the hyperkeratotic skin. So those are things that you can get over the counter that are listed here. They're often intended for like the keratosis pilaris business that people get on their arms, but they can have an effect for other sorts of hyperkeratotic diseases as well. And then in dermatology, we also have some creams that we call lightening agents. Some people call them bleaching creams. I think that sounds a little bit harsh because they're not quite that harsh. So hydroquinone 4% is one that we often use. And then you can get it compounded in this hydroquinone slash retinoid slash steroid combination. The brand name is Triluma, but you can get it compounded in whatever formulation you like. And then perhaps you can use some lasers that can help with hyperpigmentation. Any questions about acanthosis and agricans? You guys probably see this a fair amount. I see it a fair amount. Um, my guess is that you usually see it in people who are overweight, and then you counsel them or you send them to dietitians or their weight loss clinic. Is there a weight loss clinic here? Or like a weight management clinic? No? Like adolescent medicine? That's the right people? All right. Good for me to know. Um, and then you can perhaps offer them some of these options as well to treat um, the appearance of it. All right. So moving on from something common to something pretty rare. Fuck this poor little baby. How would you describe these cutaneous findings? Red. Red, love it. <laughs> Start with color, if nothing else. And I like to imagine thinking of it as if it were a Crayola crayon. What color would it say along the side? Plaques, yes, he's definitely got plaques in the neck fold there. He probably has some smaller lesions too. So a raised lesion that's smaller than a plaque is a papule, very good. So red plaques and papules, and then maybe what's he got around the nose or over here-ish? Crust, yeah. And of course you would describe this as, you know, scattered on the face and in the neck fold. So this is a six month baby. He's got this rash for about three months. It doesn't seem to bother him. Um, pediatrician thought maybe we should treat it with mupirocin and oral trimethoprimsulfamethoxazole because this bacterial culture was positive for staph. So what did his PCP think this was? Impetigo. And it certainly could be impetigenized, whatever it is, because we do see some yellow crust. So reasonable certainly to start there but didn't really get better. So this is a breastfed baby who's otherwise healthy, except that he was born at 28 weeks and spent a while in the NICU, lives at home with parents and six siblings. Wow, no sick contacts. This impetigo treatment didn't help. So what next? Dermatology, love it. Well, we might do a zinc level in that case and find that this baby's zinc level is low. We would probably also check an ELK-FOS level because ELK-FOS is a zinc-dependent enzyme. So in some babies, their zinc level might be normal, but if their ELK-FOS level is low, you can still get at the diagnosis of zinc deficiency. And I couldn't resist putting in this little clip from The Simpsons, but I can't download it from the internet. Sad. Anyway, <laughs> their 
Bart and friends and class are watching this old educational movie where somebody wishes they lived in a world without zinc. And then he discovers that he can't turn on his car and then he can't call his girlfriend to tell her he's not going to come pick her up. So he's so distraught, he tries to shoot himself, but his gun won't fire because even the firing pin is made of zinc. Zinc. So a zinc deficient world sounds horrifying and a zinc deficient baby is still bad. So where do you get your zinc? Well, there's no organ in the body whose job it is to regulate your zinc. So we have to do it ourselves, but fortunately it's not that hard for most of us. Zinc comes in a lot of foods. It's naturally present in a number of foods, including many of the foods I see you guys eating. What a healthy bunch. Look at all the salads out there. And then it's added to some foods like your breakfast cereals and things like that. You can just take zinc as a supplement. And then you might be aware that there are some of these cold remedies that are intended to help prevent or reduce the severity of the common cold, zinc lozenges and things like that. So this part gets a little bit confusing, but it helps to be able to figure out why people might be zinc deficient. And there's like five or six different ways that we categorize this. So they might not be taking in enough zinc in their diet, perhaps because they're on TPN or they're a baby and they're exclusively breastfed. And for one reason or another, their mother's breast milk is deficient in zinc. They could just not have a good diet. They could not be eating it because they have anorexia or something like that. Even have excessive losses, fluid losses, urinary elimination. And then if you lose insensible losses through burns and sweating, that can do it too. You might not be able to absorb the zinc that you do eat, which is sometimes a condition called an acrodermatitis enteropathica. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but there are other conditions as well that just make it difficult for your body to absorb zinc for one reason or another. Cystic fibrosis, I think, is an important one for pediatricians to know about. You might just have increased demand, so you're taking in enough zinc, but your body just needs more. So that's true if you're doing something that requires a lot of growth, like growing another person, or you are a tiny person who left the womb too early. You need to grow rapidly, and it's also associated with a few other conditions like down so acrodermatitis enteropathica. Sometimes this is confusing for me, which is almost embarrassing for me to say, because I'm a pediatric dermatologist. This should not be confusing at this point. So I've decided that it's not a problem with me. It's just something that's confusing. And I think that the issue is that the term acrodermatitis enteropathica is used sometimes to refer to this specific genetic disorder and is sometimes used to describe kind of zinc or even other nutritional deficiencies in general. So if you feel confused about that, welcome to the club. So in attempt to be specific, we can say acrodermatitis enteropathica, in this case, is the genetic deficiency of this particular gene, SLC39A4, does not stand for Salt Lake City, I'm afraid, solute carrier protein, which is part of this zip family. And so normally, the classic story is when the patient is, starts weaning from breast milk, they develop this rash. So that would be, you know, at age a year or whatever. I guess, I don't know what's recommended these days. Is it a year, two years? I know plenty of people stop breastfeeding earlier than that, whatever. So the issue is that in patients who have this deficiency, there are proteins in the maternal breast milk that just make zinc extra easy to absorb anyway. So that gets by that issue. And then when they stop the breast milk and they start just eating more normal diet stuff, they don't get that and so they can't absorb it properly and they develop the rash. And if the baby is not breastfed, then you see it a lot earlier. And you get this characteristic peri or official dermatitis around the mouth 
around the buttocks. And then remember it's acrodermatitis, so it's on the acral surfaces as well, so hands and feet. And then they have another, a number of other issues as well that are often associated with zinc deficiency. So those question marks are not supposed to confuse you even further, but are supposed to be arrows pointing up or down, but they don't look like that. <laughs> so they have increased allergic sensitivity, decreased ability to taste, and decreased field cognition and motor function. You can see they have a number of problems. But this is where dermatology can help because, aha, look at this crazy rash. You remember this lecture, or you don't remember this lecture, but you still think dermatology would be good to consult, and we can perhaps help make the diagnosis. And I love things that you can diagnose just based on lab. So this chart here is not for you to memorize, but just to show you that there are resources out there. So if you have a patient who has this sort of characteristic findings, and you think, hmm, Maybe they're nutritionally deficient. I remember that lecture. It could be zinc deficient. Maybe you even check the zinc level and it's normal. But remember, there are other things out there that can basically look just like this. And tables like this exist in the literature and can help you figure out which one it is. And these are some other things that can do it. Again, cystic fibrosis is an important thing. So if you do have acrodermatitis enteropathica, then you don't absorb zinc very well, but you still absorb it a little bit. So if you slam the body with enough zinc, enough of it will get absorbed that you'll be okay. So you can just supplement zinc and then you'll be hunky-dory thereafter. Here is one potential way to do it. So in this particular case, it seems to have been some kind of transient zinc deficiency state, which is not super satisfying, except that a lab diagnosed him as zinc deficient and then supplementing his zinc made him better, but we eventually stopped the zinc and then he did okay. So who knows, some combination of eating less breast milk and more food and something about his particular physiology. Um, but anyway, a happy ending, even if it's not intellectually satisfying. Questions about zinc deficiency? None. Perfect. Everything is clear. All right. How about this young man? How would you describe that spot on his face? Annular. So when I think annular, I think pale in the middle and something else on the outside. And I suppose it's a little bit pale in the middle, but I don't feel like I would call it annular. I appreciate the attempt, though. I like your enthusiasm. What's that? Heterogeneous. Okay, so it looks different. And we very rarely use the term heterogeneous when we're describing dermatologic lesions, but maybe we should use it more often. What color is it? Pink. pink. Yes, it's pink. Just imagine it as a Crayola crayon. And then do you feel like you could feel it if you ran your finger across it? I think so. So that means it is a black. Very good. And so what's the deal with all these like sunken in divots? What would be a medical term to describe that? Erosion, so maybe, but it doesn't really look like he's lost the top layer of the epidermis. This looks like what's there is something. Atrophic is the word I'm looking for. So you could describe this as a circular pink atrophic plaque. Now the whole thing is not atrophic, so if you wanted to, you could say circular pink plaque with areas of atrophy or something like that. It's also got this little crusty pink plaque on his ear. 
14 and he's had this rash for five years. It doesn't bother him, but it's slowly getting bigger. Otherwise, he's a pretty healthy guy. So lupus is a, and other autoimmune diseases are a big category of important stuff that can manifest on the skin. So especially when I have the parents who come in and say the child has this funny rash and they're worried that it means there's something wrong inside them, this is the category that I mostly think about that could actually be something wrong inside them that's manifesting on the skin. And cutaneous or lupus is probably the most common autoimmune disease that we see in dermatology that also has systemic ramifications. So again, this was confusing for me as a resident, but I think I finally got a handle on it. So as dermatologists, we split the findings of cutaneous lupus into several different categories. There's the acute version, there's the chronic version, and then there's the subacute version. So the acute version is what you normally see with the classic butterfly rash, usually associated with the systemic lupus. So people with systemic lupus tend to get acute cutaneous lupus when it shows up on their skin. And then these other sub subacute cutaneous and various types of chronic cutaneous lupus can or cannot be associated with systemic manifestations, but acute cutaneous lupus almost always is. Chronic cutaneous lupus is subdivided into several categories, discoid lupus tumidus, which is like deep lupus, and then lupus paniculitis, which is inflammation like just of the fat that's in the area, so you don't really see it much on the skin except you can kind of see that there are changes deep below, whereas lupus tumidus, there are changes both superficially and deep. And then chilblain lupus is um, what looks like COVID toes. People get those acral purplish lesions. So this patient has discoid lupus because that's most commonly the atrophic variety. So these are some examples of the other types of cutaneous lupus that can exist, but lupus is quite polymorphic. It can look like a number of different things, but these are fairly classic. So this one, which one is this? Acute, very good. So this is the classic butterfly rash, though pretty gnarly looking butterfly here. So you can see she's got sparing of the nasolabial fold, which is classic in lupus. And then here is the butterfly shape here. Why does it show up on the face in this configuration? Probably because of sun exposure. So sunlight makes lupus worse and brings out findings of cutaneous lupus. And these are the areas of the face that get hit by the sun most often. And then this is subacute cutaneous lupus. So this polycyclic annular scaly stuff is characteristic of subacute cutaneous lupus. So in pediatric lupus, I think it's helpful to know that a lot of people who have lupus developed it in childhood. So about 20% of people who will get lupus developed it sometime in their childhood. It's worse in kids than it is in adults because it's got this higher frequency of end organ damage, maybe because people don't think about it as much or something like that. And they have the standard lupus stuff the renal disease, the CNS involvement, cardiac and pulmonary less commonly. They have increased mortality compared to their adult counterparts. Discoid lupus, you see sort of things like we just saw. We see the atrophy. If you see it on the scalp, you can see what they call follicular plugging, which are little tiny bits of scale in the hair follicles. If you have access to a dermatoscope, it makes it a little bit more obvious. And then they have other signs of atrophy, such as telangiectasia. They classically have this dispigmentation and quote, discoid scarring, which one of my attendings once described as looking like Neapolitan ice cream. It's hyperpigmented, it's pink, and it's hypopigmented. So it's got the chocolate strawberry and vanilla all right there. You're welcome. 
They are often on the top part of the body, most commonly the face, but they can be a little bit more widespread. But if you have something that looks like discoid lupus and it's only inferior to the neck, think about it pretty hard because that's uncommon to have them just inferior to the neck. Again, this is a photosensitive disorder. So you see them mostly on the areas that get hit by the sun. So these are really classic pictures of lupus. If you were a dermatology resident, in one second you would look at that and say, ah, that's discoid lupus. And perhaps you can do that too, even though you guys have to worry about lungs and brains and hearts and things, and I don't have to worry about that. So you can see this looks like Neapolitan ice cream, yum yum, in an ear-shaped bowl. The conchal bowl is a commonly affected part of um, discoid lupus and most types of lupus. Um, and then it's still kind of annular, just as you once said, and then hyperpigmented in the middle. So what do you do? Well, you emphasize photoprotection, and you have to emphasize it every time because people just ignore you, or they don't think it's that big of a deal, or they want to go out in the sun anyway. But it's bad. Sunlight activates both the cutaneous and the systemic findings of lupus. So it's very important that these people stay out of the sun. And they also avoid medicines that make them more sensitive to the sun. Topical corticosteroids can help because this is inflammation in the skin. So you can do it, you can use anti-inflammatory medicines to do that. And one of the benefits of the skin is that it's right there in front of you. So you can put your medicines right where you want it. So if the inflammation is right there, you can treat with topical steroids or steroid sparing agents like calcineurin inhibitors to help get it under control. Hydroxychloroquine is first line. It's safe, it works reasonably well. Um, maybe there are some biologics these days. They're just coming out. There's this medicine called Belimumab. I think Benlista is the brand name, which is for systemic lupus, but there are some evidence that can help various types of continuous lupus as well. So in discoid lupus, about 25% of people will get systemic findings, and the other 75% is just on the skin. So I try to spin things in a positive way when I'm talking to their parents and say, three out of four chance, this doesn't affect anything at all in your child except the skin. And we'll treat the skin, of course, but we should do some labs and so on to make sure that it's not affecting other organs. So photoprotection. This is a nice little flyer from skincancer.org that gives you an idea of some of the important stuff about sunscreen. So as dermatologists, our first challenge is to get people to use sunscreen. And if we get past that point, we're already happy. But the subsequent challenges are to get people to reapply it. So if you're going to be out in the sun, you should reapply every 90 minutes or so. And the second cha another challenge is to get people to use enough of it. So in the studies, people use about half or one third as much sunscreen as that used in the trials that gave them the SPF value that they have. So if you are a normal person and you put sunscreen on your skin and it's SPF 30 and you put on the amount a normal person puts on, you're not getting an SPF 30 out of it. You're getting something less and we don't know exactly how much. But just know that people put on twice as much to give it the SPF 30 rating. Try to use at least SPF 30. Higher is better. There seems to be no limit. Higher just keeps getting better, but there are diminishing returns. So SPF 30 already blocks like 93% of UV radiation and SPF 100 blocks like 99%. So it is better, but you gotta decide for yourself if it's worth the cost, I suppose. Uh, but if you've got a photosensitive disorder, then it probably is. And then you guys might be aware that there is this study that came out last year saying that sunscreen gets absorbed into our blood. 
it doesn't say that anything bad happens when sunscreen is absorbed into our blood, but it does say it happens and we don't really know what that means. My personal feeling is that it can't be anything too awful or we would have figured it out by now. But because of that concern, for children, I recommend just the mineral-based sunscreens, which we know don't get absorbed into your blood. So those are the active ingredients, zinc and titanium oxides. For adults, I don't think it really matters that much. I just put on all the normal chemical-based sunscreens myself. I figure I'm almost 40. I've had two kids. My wife says we're all done. So there's a little bit of endocrine disruption or whatever. Like, what's the big deal? This stuff is kind of fun. So this is something you can add to your laundry to give your clothes an SPF. So you might be aware that there are already clothes that exist that have what they call a UPF, sun protective clothing, which I have been recommending to my patients a lot these days. They're fairly inexpensive, especially if you get them on Amazon or something. They're kind of light and breezy. So wearing long sleeves in the summer sounds awful at first, but you're not wearing like this. You're wearing something light and breezy. Actually, I wore a shirt today, biking up here. It's a UPF shirt that I got on Amazon. Ta-da! See, it doesn't look awful to wear, does it? And it's got this nice hood. So you can protect the back of your neck or just look cool if it's flapping around behind you. Anyway, the sun guard stuff kind of turns all of your clothing into something like that. And it works for, I don't know, something like 10 or 20 washes. So worth thinking about, especially if you have patients with photosensitive disorders. Okay, so random cutaneous features of lupus that might be more of interest to people who are interested, especially in dermatology. You don't have to be a dermatologist, you can just be interested in dermatology to still find these interesting. But I know it's hard to remember all of this stuff. But anyway, you can get erythema of the palms and soles and papular telangiectasias of those areas. You can get edema, especially of ankle areas and periorbital areas. You can get these mucinous papular nodules, especially like on the superior chest. Silvery whitening of the vermilion border. It's supposed to be characteristic. I'm not sure I've ever actually seen it in clinic, um, but there it is. There's a picture later on. And then in older people, you, women who never have to trim their bangs might be a tip-off that there's something going on with inflammation in their hair follicles, which is fairly common in lupus. So people in lupus can have various problems with their hair, and they end up sometimes getting this lupus hair stuff, and they just don't have to worry, oh, oh, that's the right word, but they don't have to cut their hair very often and they get little broken hairs around their hairline and stuff like that that you can find on physical exam. So here's some of the erythema and papular telangiectasias, which are a little bit difficult to make out, but you can see them there. And then check it out, silvery whitening of the familiar border. Plus this patient has some kind of messed up mucosa. So um, I once found this lecture online by a person I've never met, Dr. Donald Thomas, but I thought he made a lot of good points. So he describes lupus as an invisible disease because people often take years before they get diagnosed. It's a fairly mortal disease. So five to 10% of people die within 10 years of being diagnosed. Here are some labs to get when you suspect lupus. Obviously you wanna get the ANA and the lupus antibodies and stuff, and then you wanna screen them for various organ involvement. There are some things that can trigger these flares of lupus. So sunlight we talked about, smoking is one of them. And then apparently there's some decent data that low vitamin D can be bad. And if your patients are actually following your advice and staying out of the sun, they're more likely to be vitamin D deficient. So check their vitamin D levels and supplement if low. Apparently sulfa antibiotics can trigger lupus. That was news to me. Give patients their flu shots because infection is a fairly common cause of death in lupus and um, make sure they get the HPV vaccine because they're 
immune system's not working right. So they're more at risk for recalcitrant warts and then cervical cancer and things like that. What does this baby have? This is one of my patients. They gave me permission to use his photographs for educational purposes. I saw him a couple months ago and I said, huh, does his mom have any diseases? And his dad said, no. Well, she takes Plaquenil for lupus, but it's under good control. <laughs> so this patient has neonatal lupus. And this is a very characteristic, I mean, this looks just like the textbook pictures that I learned about while I was learning this stuff. They call this raccoon eyes, though I understand there's a number of other conditions that are also referred to as raccoon eyes. So raccoons get a lot of love in pediatrics, I guess. Um, so neonatal lupus happens when maternal autoantibodies cross the placenta. And so the baby is born and has these antibodies floating around in their blood. The good news, as we know, is that maternal antibodies wane around six months of age. So this is a self-limited condition. The bad news is that the antibodies can attack the electrical conducting system of the heart and cause fatal arrhythmias and heart block. So that's the most important thing to look out for. So if you have a mother who has lupus and gives birth to a baby, that baby should probably get an electrocardiogram just to make sure because it's fatal in 15% of patients and everybody else needs a pacemaker. They occasionally can have other problems like thrombocytopenia and stuff, but it's not nearly as big a deal as my impression from reading the literature. Interestingly, the cutaneous findings don't necessarily show up right away. They can show up two to four months of age. So this patient, I think, was three-ish months or something like that. And heart block would have probably become apparent by then. So we did do an EKG and he was fine. We did some blood work and he was fine. So we're just going to get better. We told him to stay out of the sun in the meantime. But, you know, baby should be out of the sun before six months of age. All right, that's all for lupus stuff. Questions about any of that? I have a question. I don't know if you can hear me. I can hear you. Thanks. Um, so can you just repeat again? So like, I have had it, you know, moms with lupus at the well baby nursery. And so can you just repeat again, like what, what we should do if we see like in the maternal history that they have lupus? Well, I'll admit, I don't know what the official guidelines say, but it seems to me that they should probably get because you might not know that they have neonatal lupus until something bad happens. You don't have the rash before you get heart block. You just have heart block. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's good. And should we see, like, is it, I'm guessing that it, like, even though this mom was on Plaquenil, so it can happen even if it's, like, well under control, uh, should we ask moms, like, what you know, anything about control? I don't think it's relevant, honestly. Uh, either way, they've probably got antibodies floating around unless they've been through some kind of antibody depleting regimen with something like rituximab, I guess. So it's probably a risk regardless. Okay, thank you. But perhaps somebody who listens to this bonus podcast will call in and tell me what the actual guidelines are. Or I can look them up for the next time. Thanks for the question. All right, our last case is a 12-month-old baby girl who's had rashes for a long time. So this rash on the scalp was thought to be seborrheic dermatitis, but maybe it was super infected or something. They tried a bunch of stuff, didn't get better. 
She's also had a rash in her trunk that was thought to be a viral exanthem, this particular viral exanthem called roseola. And he seems to have recalcitrant diaper dermatitis that's just not getting better. So if you were a pediatric dermatologist, you'd already be picking up what I'm putting down because this is a very classic story for this condition. She's also seemed to got some systemic findings as well. She's tired, she's less interested in stuff. She's not smiling as much. She's not really crawling around. She mostly just gets carried everywhere. And this is what her physical exam looked like. Shall we describe? Or do we have description fatigue? Scaly. Yep, there's scale there. Papules, yes, I see lots of papules. Exfoliated. So the medical the dermatologic term might be like desquamating or something like that. What about those like scabby areas? Scabby. Yeah, with heme crust is the term we usually use or hemorrhagic crusting because that makes us sound smarter than if we say scabby. And we may like to make up lots of words in dermatology and in medicine just to sound smarter than we are. So similar stuff here, but also with some linear plaque along the inguinal folds. Maybe some petechiae. You feel like there's true little bruises in the skin and you can try to figure it out by trying to blanch them away, either with your finger or with like a glass slide, see if they disappear. And if they're not blanching, then it probably means there's red blood cells that have leaked out into the skin. Anybody know the diagnosis? So recalcitrant cradle calf, recalcitrant diaper dermatitis, feel like you're doing all the right things and it's just not getting better, especially if the patient has systemic signs should make you think of longer Hans cell histiocytosis. So it's pretty rare. I didn't see it at all in residency or fellowship. Now I've seen a couple cases of it since I've been attending the past couple years. So skin can often be a presenting sign. So a nice example of the skin really being a window to the rest of the body. Longer Hans cell histiocytosis is a neoplastic disorder of histiocytes and it can affect any organ really but bone and skin and then the lymphoreticular system are the most common. So as you might guess, people who have more systemic organs involved have a worse prognosis. If you just have the skin or you just have a bone involved, the prognosis is decent. Bone is the most common actually, and it's usually just like a single lytic lesion, most commonly the skull. And then the skin findings are kind of the things that we looked at, especially if they've had recalcitrant things that you have thought were normal but aren't getting better, it's worth at least thinking about. And you could do a biopsy or you'd send them to dermatology. Biopsy can certainly make the diagnosis. But it can be, it can look like a lot of different things. It can also look like molluscum, weirdly, but that's very rare, case reportable. Most commonly it's this red-brown, scaly, heme-crusted, petechial, recalcitrant thing. Lots of different things can be involved. Um, if it affects the CNS, I guess it's not technically the CNS, but it can affect the pineal gland. Is that the one that's up there? Give you diabetes insipidus. That's a fairly common presentation for this as well. In the old days, we used to split this disease into a bunch of different eponyms with names like Hans Schuller Christian disease and Hashimoto Pritzker disease and stuff like that. And some people used to call this histiocytosis X. So if you've ever heard of anything like that, they're all referring to what's now called longer Hansel histiocytosis, just perhaps different presentations of it. So if you get a 
biopsy, then you can see all of these histiocytes. And you probably recall that these Langerhan cells are specific types of histiocytes that have Burbeck granules within them. This is an electron microscopy picture of these tennis racket shaped organelles. But I don't think anybody really does much electron microscopy these days. So this is sort of of academic interest and possibly somebody will get tested on it. It's a step one thing. Yeah. Good. That seems old school enough to be on step one. <laughs> Obviously, you do a good physical exam to see if they've got other organ involvement. You do these labs to make sure they don't have diabetes insipidus, they don't have bone marrow involvement, and other skeletal involvement, things like that. Um, usually, um, once if we diagnose them with longer hot cell histiocytosis, we send them to you know oncology to work them up for the rest of this stuff. If they're lucky, they can have skin-limited disease, and there's even sort of a self-healing variant of this, which is just gets better on its own over the course of a year or so, but there are reports of it resurfacing later in life, so unfortunately, they're not ever really off the hook. They should still come in for follow-up. So therapy, of course, depends on the extent. The more organs they have, the more likely they are to need some kind of chemotherapy medication. So this particular baby was in trouble had liver failure and a number of other problems, but um, got the salvage chemotherapy, which turned him around to some degree, but needed a liver transplant in order to keep trucking along. So take home message is that most, most of the things that you see that you think are common conditions will be, but when they're not getting better, then probably it's reasonable to start thinking about other options and think about getting specialists involved. Oh, we've got one more. So I said that was the last one. I'm a liar. So here is an infant who has a little brown papule on the back that occasionally develops this swelling and even bulla formation. What is it? It's a satisfying diagnosis to make, diagnosis to make for a dermatologist. This is called a mastocytoma. So mast cells, of course, are those white blood cells responsible for allergic reactions. They're full of histamine and things like that. And sometimes you can get a whole bunch of them all clumped together in one spot in the skin. It's a mastocytoma. And if they all release their histamine at the same time, they can cause the area to urticate, develop a wheel, swell up, maybe even develop a blister. But then the blister just goes away and the swelling goes away and it's not really a big deal. So it's satisfying because oftentimes patient, a parent will come in and say, my baby has this weird mole. Sometimes it acts really funny. It swells up and things like that. And I'll look at it and I'll scratch it and I'll cause it to swell up and I'll say, good news, this is just a mastocytoma, nothing to worry about. And if you scratch it in clinic and it urticates, that's known as Darier's sign. So there's how to spell it. But you can also say urticates when rubbed or something like that if you don't like Dr. Darier. So the reason this is in this lecture as a potential cutaneous manifestation of systemic disease is most mastocytomas are just isolated things, but you can have a bunch of mastocytomas. And sometimes if you have a bunch of mastocytomas, it can suggest that you can have other mast cell problems other, elsewhere in your body. So in the old days, which is current still these days because we're slow to uptake new nomenclature and stuff, we had different names for sort of the extent of the disease. If you had a mastocytoma, that meant you just had one. If you had urticaria pigmentosa, that means you had like a decent number. A decent number was not clearly well-defined, but if you had diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis, that means you had like a ton of these things. And then this TMEP thing is more of an adult issue. 
but all of those are actual clumps of mast cells in the skin that could urticate when rubbed. So we kind of went over this. In addition to rubbing them, there are some other things that could potentially degranulate them. Some medications can do it, maybe even some foods can do it. Usually though, it's a non-issue. I explain this to parents, but I say it doesn't usually bother anybody. But if somebody has a lot of these, I don't know, like 50 or something, they have a significant burden of mast cell activity, then they could start maybe developing systemic signs and symptoms if all of their mast cells release their enzymes at the same time. So most are clinically insignificant, like we say. It may involute. So urticary pigmentosa is now supposed to be called like multifocal maculo maculopapular cutaneous mastocytosis. Again, these are like when you have a bunch of them. But again, it's usually not that big of a deal. But if people have a whole bunch of them, you can consider doing like a triptase or something. There haven't been good guidelines since 2016, and that was about the sort of the cutaneous signs of mastocytosis rather than treatment. So it's been even longer since we've got some kind of guidelines about investigation and treatment. And when I was putting this together, I asked my colleagues, Dr. Vanderhoek and Dr. Cipriano, what they did. And they do things that are different than each other and a little bit different than what I do. So that suggests that there's not a great consensus among pediatric dermatologists about what to do. But what I do is usually just reassure people. There was this nice study from 2017, which showed that even though we often tell parents that these things go away over time, turns out that a lot of them don't. So these were 40 some odd kids with urticaria pigmentosa, so a bunch of mastocytomas. And a lot of them, like half of them, still had mastocytomas in late adolescence. But none of them said that they bothered them at all. We used to prescribe a lot of EpiPens for these things. Sometimes even when somebody had just a single mastocytoma, we would prescribe them EpiPens. But since EpiPens became super expensive, we started thinking about whether or not we really needed to do that. And it turns out that we don't. So a number of these patients got bee stings, which is what we really were worried about, and they were all okay. Also, I think prescribing somebody an EpiPen potentially has like psychosocial consequences. Sometimes I worry that parents treat their kids differently and see them as more fragile. And then there are all these like annoying practical issues, like they need one for dad's house, they need one for the school, they need to write a note that the teacher could administer it, and blah, blah, blah. So turns out, luckily, you don't need to do any of that stuff. So again, if it seems like they have a high burden of mast cell disease, like they've got a bunch of these spots in their skin, or when you're doing your review of systems, they do have some positives like diarrhea or wheezing or something like that, it might be worth checking things like this, CBC, CMP, and triptase to see if they do perhaps have a lot of mast cells inside them that are causing problems. And then again, only usually if they have a lot of mast cells do I bother telling people about specific triggers. We talked about EpiPens. So rarely, actually I don't think it's ever happened since I've been in attending. But yeah, I often ask, when this thing blisters up or swells up, does it bother the baby? And usually the answer is no. But if the answer was yes, I would say, well, we can prescribe you cream, you can rub on it to help calm it down. Antihistamines can help as well, because this is all histamine mediated. And we've got some pretty decent things to control against um, histamine. That's the end. This is from Homestar Runner, if any of you guys are old enough to remember that. It's over! Any questions? Nothing but silence and aqua green scrubs. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for hanging around and coming either personally or virtually. Remember, your friendly pediatric dermatologists are here to help. And if you consider yourself a dermatology and podcast enthusiast, then check out Dermosphere.
And that will do it for this bonus episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to find other bonus episodes or non-bonus episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast app, be it Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find them on our website, dermospherepodcast.com. That is also a good way to get in touch with us. And you can find some other goodies on there as well. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are Dermosphere Podcast on those as well. And normally we release an episode every two weeks with updates with some literature from the clinical dermatology world. Until next time, 